Bovino. We're back with Tell a Story, an amazing guest, Catherine O'Connell, a very prominent Aspen author who has just completed a new book about Aspen called First Tracks. Catherine, welcome to Grassroots. Thanks, Jerry. Thanks so much for having me here. Yeah, so we sat next to each other on the plane going to Chicago. And tell us the story. How did we meet? Well, very serendipitous for me. However, we have met hiking a couple times, but just Yeah, years ago on Smuggler. That was like 20 years ago. Right. So I see you getting on the plane, and I hear that you're in exit row, and I know I'm in the exit row, and I'm thinking, well, am I sitting next to Jerry? And sure enough, there we were. And so I reminded you that we'd met, and I said, I'm a writer. I know you have your show. And, um, and you said, well, tell me a little bit about yourself, which I did. And you said, I think we might be able to do something on that show. Yeah, and it's actually... I love writing. I like to write myself, as you know, because I don't have any talents. I can't play a musical instrument. I can't do any art. But to me, as we might have discussed on the plane, when, when I write something, each word becomes the musical note that will describe my scene. And writing can be painful. When you sit down, are you, you have an idea, but getting the words on paper takes work, doesn't it? Well, first, something you said just reminded me of the beauty of writing is that unlike acting or what I'm doing right now, speaking with you, writing, you have the luxury of time. So you sit in front of the keyboard. It used to be a typewriter, and you can find that perfect word and that perfect way to express yourself. So is it difficult? Sometimes it just flows, and sometimes it doesn't. You know, just the same as talking to somebody, I suppose. But, you know, it's interesting. When I write, I, I write everything on my bicycle when I'm... I have my, like, iPod on, mm -hmm. and I write everything in my head. And then when I get to the computer, I sort of vomit it up. But it's already in there. Do you do that, or do you get to the... Do you have an idea what you want to write before you start? Oh, have to have that, yes. Yeah. But it, it can take a turn and go a completely different uh, direction. But you have to have a starting point. And to your point about on the bicycle... My normal day is I know what I'm going to write. And then when I get, I write books. So I write by chapter. So I have a pretty good layout of what the chapter is going to be. And then if I get stuck, I take a break and I hike and I just work in my head over and over again. And I come up with some amazing lines. And it used to be a problem because I had to keep saying the line to myself all the way home. He walked into the room and the bomb exploded. I kept saying it over and over. But now with um, cell phones, I just text myself. I stop and text myself. So you don't forget it. Sometimes I do that in the middle of the night mm -hmm. when I get up with an idea. Oh, because you'll never remember what no, you think you're No, you won't. Gonna, no. But here's an interesting thing. Like, you had some things in your book. So Catherine gave me her book, which is called Last Night Out, which has a fabulous premise, right, about a, tell us, the bachelorette party. Well, the Last Night Out takes place in 80s Chicago. And my protagonist, Maggie Trueheart, has a bachelorette party and drinks a little bit too much and wakes up with a stranger the next morning. And to further complicate things, one of the girls from the party has been murdered, and he's a suspect. So now she's got a big uh, issue to solve or resolve, and that, that's what drives the plot. Who murdered Angie, and what was that guy doing there in the first place? Now, here's an interesting question that we're going to answer after the break. So that's why you all are going to stay through the break. I, you have some good sex in the book. It starts out, she winds up having an affair, I guess a one-night stand, with 
this guy she meets in a bar, even though she's about to get married. It's her bachelorette party. She's not at someone else's. And you have some good sex. And one of the things I'm going to ask you when we come back is, is there a difference, Catherine, between the way a woman would write about sex in a novel or a man would write about sex? Are there different angles that only a woman would know how to put on paper so that it's accurate, truthful, impressionable from both a man's and a woman's perspective. So we're going to hold that thought. We'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. So we want to give a quick shout-out and an attaboy to, uh, first of all, the Mayo Clinic that does a great job, better than people think, and I've been really impressed with the care they provide. And some of you know that before I had this better gig as a TV host, I was a retina surgeon for many years, and I want to give an extra attaboy to uh, a uh, wonderful retina specialist at the Mayo Clinic, Odette Houghton, who's at the Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale, Arizona. She has given her patients unbelievable care. She's a genius, and she provides compassionate, thoughtful care to every patient, and I've seen her uh, in action. And if you had a really complex retina problem, it would be worth your while to get down to Scottsdale, Arizona, to see Dr. Houghton at the Mayo Clinic. And uh, so we also want to thank uh, uh, the Sandler family for their support of Grassroots Television and Bishop Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning. So uh, we'll see you in a minute. We're going to find out the story of how to write sex. We're coming right back. Bishop Plumbing and Air Conditioning, serving Aspen and Vail for over 40 years. Shoe covers, name tags, IDs. Let Bishop worry about your heating, plumbing, and air conditioning issues so that you don't have to. Bishop Plumbing and Air Conditioning, 925-8610. Jerry Bovino, we're back with Catherine O'Connell. Tell a story, an Aspen author who wrote not only Last Night Out about a uh, girl who had a one-night stand at her own bachelorette party, great book, but now we have an Aspen-themed book, First Tracks. Catherine's been in the uh, Aspen genre for a long time now. So tell me, in First Night Out, I was impressed, when you see a woman write about sex, uh, I'm always curious, is there something different that you see from that experience than how a man would write about it? I think women um, put a little more of the emotional into it, even though with her it was a one-night stand, but still it's just reaching in to the feelings, to um, oh, their primal desire. And I think men are just, when they write, it's more about getting the act done. They don't spend a lot of time on what's the peripheral activities have you ever read Outlander? No. Oh, my God. Or The Horse Whisperer. In fact, Horse Whisperer had one of the best sex scenes I've ever read. And Robert Redford totally destroyed it because he did the movie and just left it completely out. But, yeah, and I think women use a little more imagination about the intimacy of the sex act. There's more of an emotional connection in the way you would write for a woman because that's your perspective as a woman writer. Right, but it's still connected to the... You know, the um, uh, actual physical gratification, of course, 
but uh, I think women write it from a different standpoint, obviously. Yeah, obviously, <laughs> from exactly. A, from a physically yeah, different standpoint. Because we are different, you know, uh, you know that book, Women Are From Mars, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. I always say that has nothing to do with it. Women grow up, men don't. So there's a big difference there. I think, uh, to add to that, women write sexier sex scenes. Oh, okay, that's interesting. They have a little more imagination, huh? Mm -hmm. I think so. Okay, so now let's get back to your, your history in Aspen. Tell us how you started here. What was, you come here, you're a ski bum, you're making pasta. Give us the story. First, I went to Boulder, like half of Chicago in the 80s. I, or 70s, excuse me. I graduated in 77, and my dream was to backpack Europe and to ski bomb before I grew up. So I backpacked Europe the year after college and then got in my little orange Volkswagen and drove out to Aspen in a snowstorm between two semis on, what is it, a 70 across Nebraska. Oh, God, I'm that's a long, flat by drive. Myself, and, and I'm driving up the pass to um, uh, the Eisenhower. There, there was no Johnson bore then. It was just the two. And... I'm in first gear in an orange Volkswagen. It's 10 at night, and I'm thinking, well, there's no lower to go than this. Anyhow, I've lived to tell the story, but got a job as a maid in town at the Snowflake Lodge. As a maid at the Snowflake Lodge. At the Snowflake Lodge. And I always say being a maid was the best job I've ever had. You get up, you do it, you're done, you go skiing. You don't have to think about it, and you can't screw it up. So, anyhow, we had a lot of fun. I made a lot of really good friends and stayed for two years instead of one. Went back to Chicago, backpacked again, and then got a job working in bars. And my idea was always to 10 bar at night and write during the day. But I didn't have the discipline. I'd 10 bar at night, I'd sleep half the day, and then... Did you know how to 10 bar from when you lived in Chicago? Well, I learned. I learned in a bar. You learned. Yeah. There's a whole thing. It's not that easy to really know how to work a bar. Well, then it was a little easier because we used to say, if the ingredients aren't in the name, you're not getting it. Scotch water, gin tonic, beer. <laughs> you know, now you've got these special Yeah, drinks, corpse so, reviver you know, and, yeah, so, right. So it was not terribly difficult. But some bartenders, and I watch this, I don't know anything about bars. I'm really not a drinker. So I never felt comfortable in a bar. Even when, when we belonged to the country club, you know, the people would be standing around the bar with their pants with the pink and green whales and stuff. And, like, I just felt out of my element. But sometimes I'll watch a bartender. And the one that I, I use as the example is Scotty, who used to be the bartender at Lusteria. At Lusteria, yeah. and now he's over at uh, Kenichi. Right, and he's a great bartender. He moves behind the bar, and I just used to watch him like a surgeon. He was like me in the operating room. Every move was orchestrated so that it was an economy and efficiency that was beautiful to watch. He's like a ballet dancer back there. You know what I'm talking about, yes, right? Yes, I do. Okay. Other people are like flumfering around. I managed a bar as well, and sometimes it would just be me and a doorman. And so I had to make drinks and keep an eye on the room because bars provoke a lot of fights. And, and you're just shocked at what happens. Um, you think everybody's happy, and all of a sudden the account, some accountant punches a lawyer because there's always a woman involved. But the violence that can come with alcohol, so, like a... Um, What's the word? A match point is unbelievable. Yeah. So, so as a bartender, you're doing a dance because you're making the drinks, but you're also keeping an eye. And also, you have to be social. A good bartender talks. In fact, that's where I've gotten a lot of my stories is I listen. I'm a really, even though I talk a lot in a mile a minute, I'm a very good listener. You have to be a good listener to be a good writer. Yeah, yeah. 
And what fascinates me about your writing, I love your writing, by the way, and you said little things that I picked up from my own thing, like things that I hadn't heard before. I have all these little aphorisms and innuendos and stuff. Uh, but you had one, I think, he was all over her like a frat rat on a case of Heineken. I love that. Well, now I'm feeling like that would be dated. But, well, uh, it is dated now, but, <laughs> but at the time it was it was good. I liked it. It's hard. That, now, this is a difficult thing, and I've learned to, when I want to have a clever line and it's not coming to me, I just put a straight line and I go on with the story. And those are things that I saw while hiking also. And you come back to it later yeah, when go, it hits oh, you. Oh, my God. But I had one time, white on rice, my brother says, white on rice, that is so old. I said, I know, it's just sitting there until I come up with something. Yeah, else. I always say, like, I'm all over her like a fat kid on a cupcake. Yeah. Oh, well, no, nah, that's good. See? Screen door submarine. No, no right. I'm really dating myself. So. <laughs> well, okay, so now... You were here, you're doing all these odd jobs, you're bartending, and by the way, alcohol plays a huge role in your books. Drinking, is, is it a big activity in general, or is it something that's just sort of indigenous to your writing? Well, I'm Irish, so okay. I confess that openly. Um, in Last Night Out, of course, it plays a big role because she's in a bar, it's a bachelorette party, one of the characters was a former bartender who had a huge alcohol problem so it plays a big role in that but first tracks not so much she's a ski patroller and so she'll go and have a beer but she doesn't have those two in the morning nights because so, she's got to be up early right, and she's a different character from the characters in that book but um let's see back to the alcohol question i'm thinking of my earlier books alcohol plays a, in fact it was so funny i was telling a friend who's also a writer uh, I said, yeah, I've got this book. Girl drinks too much at her bachelorette party, sleeps with a stranger. He goes, it's been done. I go, the book? He says, no. Drinks too much and sleeps with, with a, stranger a stranger at the bachelorette party. I'm sure it's been done. Believe me, if you could think of the most outrageous thing that you ever thought of in your life and said, oh, that's strange. No one ever had that thought. I guarantee you 100,000 other people have had that thought and 10,000 have done it. Now, real life really exceeds writing and so sometimes I have critics not many but um say well no one ever would have done that and I'm saying I know the person I just right. changed <laughs> the name okay <laughs> so how important how important it's another question that I had in my preparation to speak with you which I was looking forward to the show because we had a great time sitting next to each other on the plane trading writers yeah, stories talking telling writing story and how important is the name that you choose? In other words, when I write, sometimes if I want, like, a guy who's a football player, I'll call him, like, Buck Bellows or something because he's a middle linebacker. But how important are the names, and then how do you choose them? So names are very important, and I make a point, though, of not making names that are similar to others. It drives me crazy in Shakespeare when... You've got, you know, John and Jay, you know, and they're all the same first letter. And when you're reading a complex plot and you're trying to remember which is which. So I intentionally make sure my names are not similar. And then they have to be from the era. For example, I, the gal who's Kelly in The Last Night Out, I was writing her as Caitlin. And I thought people weren't really named. Called Caitlin in those no, days. No, no. You know, now it's all over yeah, the place. Yeah, now it's Caitlin, Madison. And there were the years of Jennifer. Right, and the years of January and the years of Jennifer. So that, to me, is important. And then I try to get a little bit of an ethnic mix. Um, and 
I want names that aren't way out of the ordinary in these books. And well, Maggie Trueheart, oh, it's, it's like, I like that name because it's like it says something. That, True heart. Right. But how important was that when you that, chose no, that name? Explain it. That was it. chosen very carefully because true heart and that's her infidelity, yet she's true heart. So I chose that. And I have a friend who has that last name, and I called her. I said, do you mind if I use your last name? And she said, no, not at all, because I was going between that and um, some friends or relatives, actually, on the other side of the family who are um, love Oh, gosh, not Loveless. Now I've forgotten. But anyhow, it was close, and I was trying to decide which name to use. But I picked True Heart, and then she's Margaret Mary because she's Catholic, and that was very, very much a Catholic name then. But her name is Maggie because that's the nickname. But True Heart was very carefully chosen. So, Catherine, it's axiomatic that most authors use some autobiographical material in their first novel. Okay, because they don't have to do a lot of research. So their story, they put some new names on it, put a wrinkle in there, and then it becomes a novel. Explain whether you think that's a valid observation and whether that was valid with you. It's very valid. And um, I speak to authors, or to fledgling authors, to aspiring writers, and I say, get the autobiography out of the way, because nobody really cares, and then go on and write another book. But now I'm going to give you a secret, is that this book, The Last Night Out, was the first novel I ever wrote. At the time, it was called Girls' Night Out, and I found an agent for it. He was a big-time agent, and he said he thought he could sell it, and he didn't. And then he went on to sell my second book, which is Skins, but that's not part of this conversation. So the very first book you wrote first sat on the shelf. First manuscript I ever wrote, and that's this. And then, all of a sudden, these women's books were coming out, like Girl on a Train and Gone Girl. And actually, I know Gillian Flynn. I sat on a, a panel with her at Chicago's Printer's Row. But anyhow, I saw these, and I thought, I've got that genre. It's not the same story, absolutely not, but it's the same appeal, the appeal to women. So I pulled it out and rewrote it, rewrote it current day, but the texting and the cell phones and the email didn't work with my plot. So I put it as a flashback. And, of course, my writing's improved because I have three other books in between, and so I um, fixed up the writing, sent it off to my agent, and she sold it very quickly. Where were, what were we driving? Oh, personal experience. So when I say I know those girls, all my characters are composites. Of people you of know. Of people I know, yes. And it takes place in the north suburbs of Chicago, which is where I'm from. And I know people, when they're getting married, have these questions, and things like this have happened. But I'm always quick to remind my husband I never had a bachelorette party. Right, and thank God, because he'd be suspicious it were you, right? No, his, in fact, his friends, men read the book and enjoy it, which I really get a kick out of because most fiction is read by women. But um, the men who've read it, they just come back and think, oh, I really, really liked your book. And they're giving Fred the eye like, hey. <laughs> well, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking, so, I mean, I wonder, I was going to ask you, did you have a bachelorette party? No, I didn't. Okay. But I've been to many. And so Go ahead. I'll give you one other point. So after the book's basically in the can, but I like to legitimize things. And also for publicity, I was looking to see what they do now. And this is named The Last Night Out, which is what they call the bachelorette parties now, The Last Night Out. But there are stories of brides that get together with their bridesmaid and decide they're lesbians and the whole wedding is called off. True stories. Google it. Google, yeah. Google 
Craziest bridesmaid or craziest bachelorette party stories. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. But you know what? Hey, it's they're all part of the one. human experience. Or they're so. all sleeping with the stripper. <laughs> so it's really funny. <laughs> I love it. So you travel a lot. You think travel does play a role in giving you a broader perspective as an author. Yes. And it, it lets me write other uh, areas into my writing, too, with some authority. Um, if you've been someone, you smell the smells and you walk the streets, uh, it gives you that knowledge. A more sort of authentic if you've been to Dublin, you're going to have a more authentic way of describing Right, because you've seen them in the bars, you know, and it's not a movie. But in my book, Well, Red and Dead, I've been to Vietnam in the Far East, but I've never been to Cambodia. And so she goes from Vietnam to Cambodia. So for Cambodia, I used guidebooks, blogs. And does she go to Phnom Penh? Does she, like, yes, she get does, the yeah. whole thing, yeah, right? Some. And so I had to rely on other sources for that but still having been in the east and seen you know the frenetic pace and the people and the beggars and all that it gave me that ability but so somebody in an interview in time said so how much time did you spend in, in Cambodia, Cambodia. So I've never been there that's funny so I'm fascinated by the fact that you just said it wasn't planned into my pattern today but you just said I've written three books and I've gotten better at it why do you think you were able to improve what you were doing in the beginning. What did you learn that you could share with the other authors out there who want to know what makes them better? Writing. It's the truth. Um, just like if you play tennis, you become a better tennis player. If you play the piano, you become a better piano player. It's the brain. Whatever those synapses are, they just connect. The words come to me so much more quickly now. In, when I first wrote Girls' Night Out, which was the mother of the last night. The predecessor yeah. of... So I would write, hello, she said. Hi, how are you, he said. But people don't talk like that. Well, and you do said, 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 said. And then I started coming with she, well, not intoned, but I would come up with other words. And then there were times where you just left any description out at all and used scenery. And so now my brain works that way much better. And also I cut all the stuff that, um, as Leonard Elmore would say, people skip over. They said to him, how did you become such a popular writer? He says, because I leave out the stuff, everybody skips. So if you say hello, you can just say hello, the smoke filled the room, right. rather than... They saw, uh, they greeted each other, not, not, that's a little stilted, but uh, walked in and he nodded. You know, it's not, not hi, my name is so-and-so. Oh, well, my name is so-and-so. Yeah. They introduced themselves and got on with it. Um, just their ways, shortcuts... And some people don't use them, and some people do. But it just start, things started coming to me faster that I can be more plot and not the peripheral normal conversations. So we can cut to the conversations that are critical without me putting people to sleep. Right. You don't want to put them to sleep. No. You want them to stay Turn engaged. Turn that page. And a page turner. Yes, yeah. So, okay, let's talk about telling a story. You have the story in your head. Do you, there are two theories of writing a book. It's like, the, my joke is there are two theories about understanding a woman. Unfortunately, neither one works. Works, yeah. Okay. <laughs> but there are two theories about writing a book. The first is you just sit down and you start writing and you just, and the other one is to have a very structured outline because you're telling a complex tale and the words and the paragraphs are a cloth that you're weaving into this complicated story. 
Which do you use and why do you think that's better? Well, the first thing I'm going to say is there's no boilerplate for writing a book. And I used to moderate the writer's group here in Aspen. And I sometimes get these wealthy guys who came in. They say, I want to write a book and I want to make a lot of money. And so what do mm, I do? And I good said, luck. Yeah. And I yeah. said, first of all, it's hard for great writers to make a lot of money. So retired businessmen. But anyhow, I just had to put that in. There's no boilerplate. And each author has a different um, system. Ann Patchett knows her book from beginning to end, writes once, a little bit of rewrite, and she's done. I've sat in on so many writers' conferences. Um, uh, oh, I forget his name. He outlines a 125-page outline. And I said, well, after that, all you need is the and uh and he said. Right, because you have the whole book right. written. But every author is their own way. Me, I have, I know the story I want to tell. And I write mystery or thriller. So everything is... That's your genre. Yes. Why do you like that? What, what appeals to you personally about that genre? It just, it came out on my first book. To your point, people said, say, oh, I'll sit down and write a book. And that's what I was doing. I was writing a book about a girl getting married, which is where I was in my life. And all of a sudden... This plot came to me, and I thought, whoa, this is more exciting than, you know, just then she gets married and whatever happens. And so when the plot came to me, then I knew what the end was already. So I had to write the story and make it match the end, and that's what's tricky with mystery. But instead of getting all bogged down, I just write it. If it's bad, I write it. You I don't outline it. I'll outline the next day's chapter, because then that gives me something to get up and do. Really, because the hardest thing, I would rather clean the bathroom with a toothbrush. I'd rather clean that toilet with a toothbrush than go and sit at my computer in the morning. But just like going to work at any job, once you're there, it starts to Do come. you have to force yourself to get going? Talk about the concept of writer's block. It's something that we hear about, we read about, we see it on TV. I have writer's block. I'm sitting there and I can't... Well, if you know your story, you won't. There's no hard and fast rule, but I would say if you know your story, you're not going to have a total writer's block. If you don't know your story, of course there's writer's block because you're standing there like uh, Chevy Chase in whatever that movie was where he wrote the and stared at the typewriter. <laughs> but So I already know my characters, basically. If I get stuck, I pick up a yellow pad because I was trained. I learned to write hand to paper, and I can write five pages on a yellow pad in an hour. And then I'll just go back and put it on the computer and then fix it And up. some writers actually still use old-time typewriters because they like the feel. I read oh. about that recently. And um, I think it was James Patterson who writes his books entirely on a yellow pad. And um, Nelson DeMille, I think, also. And then Pays. Oh, I love Nelson DeMille's Yeah, he's books. one of my favorites. Gold Coast. Well? Oh, my God. Word of Honor. I love that book. I'm Charm School. Oh, Charm School. See, we're he doing a good so ad good. for him. But I, I, I just laugh my head off when I read. But I, I think it was him that he writes... He writes on a yellow pad, and then you know he gives it to an assistant. Do you learn things it. when you look at it, when you read another writer's books? Do you say, "Ooh, that's pretty clever"? I that kind of foreshadowing I hadn't. Explain foreshadowing to our viewers. Well, it's just kind of giving, putting it in their mind that something might happen, and then as a mystery writer, it does or it it's does. a very important thing yeah, yeah. that she tripped on the. Uh, or something moved. There was a book in the corner that wasn't there earlier, and then yeah. you go. But people talk about writing as being three scenes. You know, I don't even bother with it. I just tell the story. I don't. I do things, and I don't even realize I've done them. I wrote one book, Skins, and 
my editor says, I loved how you picked animal names. Like the girl was named Bunny. And that was not conscious at all. Now maybe it was subconscious, subliminal, I don't know. But then I looked back and I did have all these animal names for people. So part of writing is mystery, it really is. Like painting or composing music. Well, here's an interesting thing. So when I write, it's so heartfelt. It's so precise. It comes so much from my brain and my gut that once I get it down and I perfect it because I don't, you know, I go back, I reread it, I change it. And then one of the editor will want to change a word, okay? And it drives me up a wall because that word was chosen for a specific reason. And for me, it's like someone saying to Leonardo da Vinci, you know, the smile's not right on the Mona Lisa. Change it. It's a bad smile. It's like that's the smile he wanted. How do you respond when people criticize your choice of plot, of words, of characters? Um, I'm just happy to be published, and so I generally go with what they say. I really do because. And give me an example of something where they'd say something that well, I'm sure this has happened. I'm sure things are stuck in your mind where it annoyed you. Uh, well, on well, bread and dead. I wrote a book. It's a mystery which I told you is based on a real-life story in Chicago. But anyhow, the, edit, the editor who bought my book, she calls me, she said, I just read your book. I love, I love, I love your book, but I want you to take out every reference to time because I want this book to be... be timeless. Timeless, exactly. And so I called my agent and I said, we can't take out everything to time because there was a key point. So my agent stood up for me, went back to the editor, and she said, we can't take everything out. And she says, I'll let you keep that one point. So the book got published, or no, I'm sorry. Then this editor went to another publishing house. So my new editor calls me and she says, I've just read your manuscript. I love your book. I love your book. But I have no idea when this is taking place. That Swear to God. That is funny. So I said, you know, I can solve that very easily. So I pulled out the things about the Ivana Trump TV show, because those were little things that I was giving people to let them know the setting. So I'd taken them out, and luckily with computers, I saved them. We just popped them right back in, and that was done. But if you uh, establish time and place, okay, in your book, for instance, in Last Night Out, you establish Chicago as the place. And you know Chicago because you're from Chicago. How important, Catherine, is it to establish a setting in your novel, or could that have been any city? Clearly, it's important. I, I like Chicago because I could identify places and feel safe identifying them without um, compromising the story. Scott Turow, he'll write, he's from Chicago. He wrote Presumed Innocent, and he made up a, a town. But it could have been Chicago or any city. So how important? I like to semi-educate people about a place. Like First Tracks takes place in Aspen. But you have to tread very carefully because I want the streets to be right, but I'm allowed to add a house or a building or a fictitious street for the... Because it's a novel. Right, for the purposes of my plot. But once again, when I talked about Cambodia and Vietnam, for me, place, I want to learn something when I'm reading. And so that's why I like to use actual places and not made-up places. And to write a good book that isn't your first autobiographical... Uh, knowledge, you really have to do some research. Mm -hmm. You do research. Well, certainly I research um, the ski patrol. She right. has to blow off bombs. And actually she goes to Samaritz, and so I did research that, and because uh, I have not been there yet. 
And, um, and she gets lost in the woods. And how do you bivouac and survive a night out in the cold? And with well-bred and dead and well-read and dead, I had to research the venues that my character visited. And Skins was about the murder of a fur model, inspired by Aspen, by the way. Okay. Because I was here when they were trying to outlaw fur, and I wanted to write a book with a hook. So I murdered a fur model, but she was in New York. Um, but I had to research the fur industry and, and hunters and, and uh, the animals that are trapped out in the wild with the, and they gnaw their arms off and that sort of thing. And Google has become a lot, made it a lot easier to research, you know, like fur industry or something. You just type it in, you got it. I spent so much time in libraries, really. And uh, So I'm curious, are there certain universal themes that govern all of writing, all of life. Are we talking about love, success, money, lust, greed? What are the themes that you think are incorporated in every book? Read the Iliad. Read the Iliad. <laughs> tell us about the Iliad, because a lot of our viewers may not know about the Iliad. Well, so tell us. I would call it essentially our first book in Western civilization by Homer. And he recounted the story of the Trojan War, which was, give or take, I think, 1100 B.C. But his, it wasn't published. It was carried word of mouth, I believe, around 800 B.C. as they attribute it. But the story of the war, it's the Greeks uh, and the Trojans, Helen of Troy. They're going to recover Helen of Troy. But the theme is war, envy, love, lust, I said envy, but I'll say it again. Jealousy. Jealousy drives everything. Jealousy is very powerful, yeah. isn't it? Why is jealousy, do you think, such a powerful emotion? I think it must be something in the DNA. Maybe caveman-related. I don't know. It's hard to bury. It's just envy is hard to bury. And you can logically say, I shouldn't feel this way, but it's a feeling that is so... But My it's mother not would logical. It the... And it's interesting because in the Chinese say that in jealousy, there's more self-love than love. Well, It's an interesting, I'm, I'm always fascinated because some people, jealousy controls them. It dominates them. No, no. You, you remind me, um, more self-love than love. I was thinking, I think it was Confucius who said, the man who seeks revenge, this isn't jealousy, is best served digging two graves. Right, <laughs> yeah. But um, If you want to kill someone, bring two coffins. Right. So, <laughs> anyhow, back to the Iliad. It's just all the themes that we do. And we nothing has changed now. in thousands of years. No. It's but the he, same human emotions, whether it's by a text message or an email or a phone call or a real-life canoe trip. It's the same human emotions. And this is what writing in stories gives us, and it shows us ways to deal with it, perhaps, or how to attack it. And um, sometimes if you walk away from a book and you've changed your perception, your perception on someone else, even envy because of what you've seen happen, that's a benefit uh, from the book. Okay, so now let's talk about Aspen, your new book, which is that called... <laughs> Catherine O'Connell first tracks is Aspen centric. It's based it in is. Aspen. And let's talk about Aspen in general for a second. What is it, Catherine, about Aspen that just fascinates almost everybody? And not always in a good way. Some people love it, some people hate it, some people have missed stereotypes about Aspen. Why is Aspen such a fascinating, 
little place that not only drew us here and kept us here, but has the whole world sort of mesmerized about it. Well, here's an ad for Aspen. And we'll probably, housing prices will now go up like by 500% because more people will want to move here. But it's unique in all the world. It truly is. First, you have the physical beauty. You pull in this valley, it's gorgeous. Um, second, you have the weather, which is unparalleled, I feel, in many parts of the world because you have four beautiful seasons. It's warm. And it used to be so cool in the summers at night. That's changed. But you still have four very separate and pleasant seasons. Winter, the sun, the sun comes out 300 days a year. Now, also you have the education. We have the institute. We have the music festival. We have pop festivals. We have jazz festivals. We also, you can go, I'm on the board of Aspen Words, and I go see Jeffrey Eugenides. Uh, I met Frank McCord, and we became very good friends, or Wale Shayanka. And you walk down the street, and you're with these people. It's not like New York where you drive or go far. It's, um, it's very hugely stimulating as um, Walter Papke tried to recreate ancient Greece, as I go back to the Iliad, mind, body, and spirit. And uh, the town does a good job of keeping that. Now, when I was young in a ski bum, though, there were so many people fighting growth, and we have them to thank for how good Aspen still is, because otherwise it'd be veiled at 10-story buildings. I know. We're very <laughs> fortunate to have Aspen be this unique little, I call it, velvet handcuffs. But People come here and they say, oh, I'm tired of Aspen. I'm going to move to San Francisco, New York. Three months, they're back. They can't get away from it. We're all passionate. We're passionate. And also, everyone is interesting. That's the key point. So, it's not, there's a common stereotype that everybody in Aspen is like the richest person on earth. They're no, not. But, but the guy you're hiking with has climbed Everest. And or he sailed and, around the world yeah, one, and, with one hand tied behind his yeah, back solo so, in world record time. I mean... The people here do stuff. Well, my husband's favorite book, The Passions of the Western Mind, he was turned on to that by a taxi driver in 1988 who said, you want, he, he was talking about books with the driver because everyone's educated in one thing or another. I'm not saying necessary school, but everyone has something to tell you. And so here's the taxi driver teaching Fred what he should be reading. I got a better one than that. Um, 20 years ago, I'm taking a taxi, high mountain taxi, down to the airport, mm -hmm. and... Uh, it's 6 o'clock in the morning, and the sun is just hitting the tips of the bells. And I started talk, talking to the taxi driver about Alpenglow. And he says to me, well, I have a Ph.D. in English, and did you know that Shakespeare mentions Alpenglow 48 times in his sonnets? I mean, this is the Aspen taxi driver. You couldn't make that up. Um, so... We've just summarized, basically, the great appeal of Aspen. And so now how do we fit that appeal, okay, into a book like First Tracks? And how do we keep, this is something that fascinates me because it's easy to stereotype Aspen. How do we keep it from being a stereotype? Not everybody here is a billionaire with a G550, and not everybody is a poor ski bum. There are people in between. How do we keep that from being a stereotype and being real? Well, I'm just going to backtrack a little bit on you because my publisher, for the last night out, loved my book, and they said, can you come up with a series that nobody's doing? And I've always wanted to write a one-off that takes place in Aspen, but I said, sure. How about a ski patrol woman as a protagonist? And they loved that. 
And so, I like the name, by the way. Tell us the name. because. Well, okay, so Greta Westerland. Greta is named after the daughter of a ski patrol friend of mine. And Westerland was the name of my Swedish roommate when I was a ski bum here in 1979. I like that Westerland. It sounds yeah. somehow it's well, poetic. And Sweden plays prominently in the book. So that's how this book came to be. Aspen, the book is really driven by Greta Westerland and her activities. She's the protagonist. Right. And so in this book, there's an avalanche. She's caught in an avalanche, and her best friend, ski buddy, a bond trader, Warren McCarthy, is dead. And they were in very, very um, dangerous terrain, avalanche-prone, just outside Ruthie's. It's called Orphids. You know, that, that um, aspect that faces... Catches the western sun. Yes. And so she wakes up in the hospital. This is the first chapter, so I'm not giving anything away. And when she learns about this, she cannot figure out what she was doing there. So that drives Because them. that was a dangerous place where she normally wouldn't have been. Absolutely no reason the two of them would have been skiing there under the conditions. And so that's what drives the mystery of this book. There are other things to include Ted Bundy, but I'm not going to give too much away. But the point is, the book takes place in Aspen. It is not... Do you set Aspen. the time? Is it? Yeah, it's present day. Present well, day. I don't use it, but I make references a little bit political climate change. But I don't name anybody. Uh, so Aspen, as we've discussed, is a very unique place. So I get to use events that she attends and, and famous people being here and the beauty and the sports. But I don't name restaurants. I'll say, oh, they went to the sushi place and had sushi because so right. I, I don't want to get that picky would the I, restaurants here's an interesting question would the let's say the caribou club where well, many I, of us would the restaurants like it if you named it or would you have to get special permission and a copyright infringement or you don't need permission but i don't want to advertise for one guy and not the other okay really. all right but so i um but my ski patroller this you learn early her, she aspires to climb Everest, so you have to save money. So she works one night a week at the Bugaboo as a coat check girl. Okay. And she's putting those hundreds, you know, in her pocket as they're tipping her for the raccoon coats. The it's interesting because I once did a show with coat check girls. The whole show was coat check girls. They're probably the richest people in town. Well, here's the story. So I asked... <laughs> that and the dry cleaner. I asked them, and they were the coat check girls at, like, Aquilina. It wasn't Aquilina. It was probably Farfalla then, or one of those old restaurants. Mm -hmm. But, and I said, you know, tell us the stories about being... I mean, they have fascinating stories. They're standing behind there in this cramped little thing. You can write a coat check girl into your next novel. And well, I, said, I said, what's the biggest tip you've ever got from, a, from, a, uh, from one coat? And they all said, well, $100 isn't that uncommon for one coat, mm -hmm. okay? And I said, wow, that's a lot of money. And, and there's usually a backstory where, where it's some older man who's with his wife, and he'll hand her the $100 bill with his business card and say, call me. Because <laughs> the essence of a coat check girl is she's young and beautiful. She's usually 22 years old, and she's beautiful and tall, has legs that go to the throat, the whole thing. And so then I said, well, what do you do? They said, well, I keep the 100 and throw out the card. Yeah. yeah, but that's a common occurrence. Well, everybody works for money, right? I know, <laughs> I know. What about, what's the worst thing? Now, we're going to get some young authors who are going to want to watch this, who are going to want to be a real author like you. And a real author isn't someone who just had one book. You have like a, 10 books. 
So that's impressive because you actually have a body of work, an oeuvre, as we would say. What would you recommend to a young person watching this show who wants to be an author? What's the smartest thing they can do and what's the worst mistake they can make, Catherine? Well, the smartest thing they can do is write the book and finish it without quitting your day job. That's the smartest thing you can do. And then you have to look for an agent. You have to find an agent. A literary you know. agent. Yes, you have to have you can, The days of over the um, thresh, not threshold, what's the thing? Uh, you know what I'm talking about? No. It just, over the transom, the days of over the oh, transom okay. are gone. They used to, you know, pop up manuscript. nautical technology. Right. You have to have an agent. And so the most important thing to do is to finish the book and to finish it as close to perfection as you can get. Because I can't tell you how many writers I've counseled who say, oh, here's my book, and I read it, and I say, this is a good idea, but it needs a lot of work. Oh, they'll just understand it, and we can fix it up together. No, that does not work. So if you have the genius, perfect it. Um, but don't, over, don't drive yourself nuts either, but don't be lazy. And I even know when I'm lazy. I'll look at, go back and look at a page. Like I was so lazy on that page, and then I have to go back and fix it. How important is the subject matter choice itself? Today, probably certain subjects are in vogue, you know, harassment, okay, Epstein. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in the news, Weinstein, uh, Bill O'Reilly, uh, their relationships with women. Those things would seem to sell today. But how important, if you got some completely antiquated concept of something else, would that matter? You think you could still get someone interested in it? No one knows. No one knows. You can't chase what's going on now. But who knew Fifty Shades of Grey would sell 33 million books? Tell me about that book, because I, I haven't read it, but of course it sold like a gazillion books. Why did it sell so many I books? think it appealed to um, women at home. Mostly it's, women. It's sexual fantasy completely. But I read the thing, I'm like, Were they bored? The Why did they want that? I mean, it was stuff, there was nothing so unique or original, supposedly, from I don't know, the story is... Um, pedestrian, really. I yeah, mean, but so she writes good sex scenes, and I yeah. think it appeals to some... Writing is a skin. And the man I'm, always has, like, strong arms, and he's, well, you know, like this Fabio character. It's one guy, but reading is escape for all of us. And it hopefully it's teaching you something while you're reading, or it's just pure escape, as it would be reading Fifty Shades of Grey. I, um, I don't think... I think reading is like eating. Sometimes you're in the mood for fast food, and sometimes you want gourmet. So are you going to read Tolstoy, or are you going to read um, uh, a James Patterson novel? Which I, I, I respect and appreciate him a lot, but you know they're, simp they're far more simple. So taking that back around, as an author, you can't chase a trend. You can't chase a trend. You have to write your own story, whatever it is, whether it's about China in the 1300s, or it's about living in Seattle and being in the... Um, tech industry. You have to tell your own story. That, and that's, and that's the, the truth. And the mistake that you could make is to not do your best job the first time. Yes, mm -hmm, exactly. And do you send a query to the literary agent rather than sending them your book? Exactly what's the mechanics of getting through that initial introduction? Well, each agent, first of all, there's a book called Writer's Guide to Literary Agents. So pick that up. You can probably get it online, too. The guy who wrote the book on the guide to the agents is making more money than the writer. Oh, sure. There, for there sure. are so many writers out there. But anyway, it gives a listing, and it will tell you what 
they cover, which um, some are mystery, some are children's books, and they're totally different industries. So find agents that you think um, would carry your book, or go in the library, better yet, and look, if you wrote a mystery, start looking in acknowledgments from mysteries and see who their agent is. And then write a very personal letter to that agent. And we all use the computer for you know, mass producing, but write, I see that you are the agent for the Da Vinci Code. And I've written a book about Italy at the same time, and I think we could have a relationship. So that's how I say personalize. Tie him to right. your story. Right. Or, um, write, or her. Um, small agency. Hi, um, I've written a book, and I see you have a very small agency, and I would love the personal um, management of a small agency. Because then they know you're not just mass producing the same letter to every single agent. Do agents produce fiction and nonfiction, or do they specialize in one or the no, other? No, no, they specialize. Some do both. So, but the point with agents is they know the editors, and they take the editors to lunch, and they say, "I have this book you want to read," and then the editors read it, and nine times out of ten, it bounces back, and every once in a while, you have a match. So. And how about? the concept of your books being ultimately transformed into a movie. Does that excite you? Has it ever happened? Has, have you had a proposal about that? And what do you think are the factors that make a book appealing to a screenplay? Well, first of all, every writer's dream is for their book to be a film or a Netflix motion picture media. Because be it gives you broader exposure. It drives book sales. You don't most authors do not get paid a lot for that, and the options are ridiculously low. I had a, uh, um, I guess I can say his name because he's passed, but do you remember Dennis Farina? He was the Chicago cop, and uh, he was on, I think, L.A. Law, Law and Order. Yeah, 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 yeah. So his girlfriend read my book, Well-Bred and Dead, which takes place in Chicago, and she said to him, you got to make this a movie. So through my agent, they offered an option, which was very low, so then my agent pulled some other fancy agent in and they made this huge big deal and he just walked away. So now on um, on First Strikes and a couple of my others I've had a little bit of query and I'm keeping my fingers crossed on that but it's it's nothing until it's something. But you would, every writer wants that. Yes, yes, yes. And and uh, one guy told me, he said, well, if we do this and the writer, the script writers get it. You won't recognize it, but you'll still sell a lot of books. I go, right, I works don't care. for me. But you know what's interesting is most people, when they say, it's very rare that the movie is better than the book. The people only, say the book was better. The only one that I think really matched up was Gone with the Wind. It was, and it left out a lot of it. And you book. have to make it a long movie. And the Godfather movies were, yes, they were, were pretty they good. Were, except they, for the third one, which who knows what that was about. But Godfather 2 was like one of the best movies ever. It was amazing. But in the end, you know, do I want a movie? Or, I write books because I'm a storyteller. I'm not really going to change anybody's life, but I love to tell stories <clears throat> and share them with people and let people escape. So your favorite author, do you have a favorite author? <clears throat> That's a hard one. <clears throat> when I was young, it was Michener and Cotton. Why Michener? Because I loved historical fiction. And the books are so well researched. Well, toward the end they became basically textbooks, but his early ones like Hawaii, Sayonara, um, uh, South Pacific, and then he just takes you on his life journey. But then when you got to Poland and you know, past then, it basically became a lot of science, but science history, 
So you think his best mission, his best book was Hawaii? I love. I've read it like six times. Wow. And I was a kid. If a book wasn't a thousand pages, I wasn't really interested. But now I love Kate Atkinson and Barbara Kingsolver. They write really, really great stuff. And Atkin Atkinson, if I'm saying that right, she writes um, a lot of World War II. I'm really interested in World War One and World War Two, as a lot of people seem to be nowadays. Yeah. Somehow, war movie, war movies, war books never lose their appeal. There's something so primal about a war that brings out all these other aspects of human nature. Well, it's a question. How could this have happened? And in your brain, you wonder how you can prevent it from ever happening again. But back to the Iliad, it's the same, same things. Territory, jealousy, envy. Hitler, was he was envious of the Jews, I think. That's interesting. There's a... There's a uh, Fascinating young man in town named Roman. He just finished high school. He's the most interesting, good-looking, kind of quirky, seductive kind of guy you ever met. And he hangs out at Victoria's, and, he's, and his expertise is Russian literature, specifically the Brothers Karamazov. He loves that book. He's read it like 5,000 times. And he underlines, and he reads it. And he said to me one day, as I was sitting there talking to him, and the guy, I was mesmerized by this kid, because he just is sitting there and reading the Brothers Karamazov. was Tolstoy, right? No. Um, uh, 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 also, Anna Karenina, uh, who wrote that? No, Anna Karenina was Tolstoy, War yeah. and Peace. Brothers Karamazov, uh, I'm drawing a blank. Okay, anyway, he loves this book, and he told me, he looked at me right in the eye like this, and he said, Jerry, if you read the Brothers Karamazov, you will know everything you need to know about life forever. I mean, think about that. So, I mean, that's a pretty impressive statement from one book. And I have a professor here who says, if you know the Bible, mythology, and Shakespeare, you'll know everything. Well, people always say, you know, it's sort of a, a, a common saying that the Bible is the greatest story ever told, the great greatest book ever written. Do you want to comment on that? Well, I'll go back to the themes. Well, we, we haven't touched on faith, but humans have always sought some kind of faith, some belief. But it's a story. There's violence. There's cheating. There's money. Uh, there's envy. All the same themes. And how about you your husband? You have to remember a lot what? more names. Does your husband read all your books? <laughs> yes, he does. Do you ever ask him for his opinion? Like, no. what do you know? You no. <laughs> Why no, don't you ask him? Because... Fred reads basically biography and history, and so he's not my target audience at all in this. The only thing I do want to know, though, is does it make sense? I tell writers, you know, everyone has their own way of delivering it, but if your character got up and walked across a room and nobody saw it, you have to revisit how you wrote that. They might not like, uh, people might not like, you know, when you're in a writer's group, they might not like that the character had black hair or tripped or whatever, but if they didn't see what happened, that's what you have to fix. There are a lot of talented writers in Aspen. That's why we have Aspen Word. I'm going to give Scott Lasser a shout-out. Scott's a great guy, I great like writer, Scott. good He's friend. very smart. He's handsome. He's charming. And I really like him. He's super guy. Super yeah. Guy. Mm -hmm. So, okay. Now, to tie this all together, what would you have done if you weren't a writer? I would be a writer. Oh, okay. Well, let's see, that's the best because answer. Because... I did all these odd jobs. I've done just about everything you can do. I've always been self-supporting, always, since the day I graduated college. But I did all these odd jobs. I've collected experiences. And then finally I got a real job as a sales rep. 
and I was miserable. And I did it well, and they kept promoting me, and I was, to use our word, freaking out because I wanted them to fire me and let me go, and I felt so bad because they trained me and they spent all this money. But when I quit, I realized that if I had to be the coat check girl and write, that's what I was going to do. I, I have five published, and I have five in a drawer. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Well, so I want you to... Uh, try to get some of Catherine's books. She writes great. It's terrific stuff. So the f one that I read is The Last Night Out about the girl who has an affair at her own bachelorette party, mm -hmm. and we won't tell you what happens. And the new one, which is Aspen-centric, Catherine O'Connell first tracks the ski instructor, Westerland. What's her first name? Greta. Greta, Greta Westerland. Westerland. Uh, gets caught in an avalanche, and then it all snowballs from there. It's great to have uh, Catherine on the show. Say hello to her if you see her in town. Be sure to get the books, and we will see you next week.